Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Hey, this is exciting. Yeah? Maybe not for you, but I'm one of the elders here, like, uh, like Eric said, at the town church, privileged to serve uh, the church in this way. Vince, who's our regular teaching pastor, is on sabbatical this summer, as you might know. Last I heard from him, he was camping on the beach in California. So that's exciting. I've done that, and that's enjoyable. I'm glad they got to get away and uh, for some time of rest. Um, last time I was asked to preach here was about four years ago, so I'm not sure what that tells you. We'll let's just see how this goes. Um, super excited to be able to share on Psalm 23 today. Um, if you saw my big stack of notes today, you would freak out. Don't freak out. The reason is, though, let me, let me just tell you. The reason is because I have poor eyesight, so I blew it up into, like, size 400 font, so I'll move through them pretty quick. So in case you're freaking out. Also, one other thing I want to say, if you fall asleep today, I will call you out. You know who you are. Um, Turn to Psalm 23, if you would, in your Bible, uh, and um, I'll get started here. We'll jump into Psalm 23 into our text real quick. But I wanted to tell you a little bit something about my life. Uh, My wife, Darla, and I, it's not uncommon to find us on a Friday night um, sitting on the couch watching a British detective show. I don't know how many of you guys are into British detective shows, but we are. We're just kind of weird that way. Some of you guys, though, I know, are into weirder things like sci-fi shows or cooking shows or home improvement. Yeah, let's watch someone tear out their bathroom. That's interesting. Um, Or zombies. You guys know they're not real, but some of you guys are into that. We like British detective shows. Uh, So it's not uncommon to find us on a Friday evening after we've um, prayed together for a couple hours, memorized a couple chapters of the Bible, and built some housing for needy homeless people in our community to settle in uh, on the couch and and check out one of these shows. Um, One of the challenges for me is that uh, many, of this show, many of these shows take one storyline, I don't know if you've seen these, but they break the storyline into um, a couple of different episodes, one, two or three episodes. It drives me crazy, because I can't, i, I got to see the end. i got to see how this, thing, um, how this thing ends. So um, the problem is, Darla's falling asleep on the couch next to me, the, the thing ends, and they always end on some hanger, you know, and you're like, what, what's going on? And, uh, and I, can't, I can't stand just like shutting it off. So... Um, I'm really not good at delayed gratification. That's just um, not me. I tend to pop all the bubble wrap. I chew the Tootsie Pop. I light all the sparklers at one time. And I eat all those chips that come in the skinny red can, just in one shot. And I stay up till midnight watching the final episode. Can anyone relate to this? Is anybody? Nope. All right. Yep. Over here. I see a hand. Um, But today it's awesome because we get to see both episodes of the story. We get to see the, the, the beginning of the story unfold, and then we also get to see the last episode that, that brings it together. So watch for that um, as we get, go, get going here. Uh, we get to start with this prophetic passage of Scripture in Psalm, uh, and then we get to follow through to the fulfillment of the, prophes- the prophetic in the New Testament. We get to see the whole story. So uh, turn to Psalm 23 in your Bible, if you would, and um, let's, uh, let's look at our text. In fact, would you stand with me uh, as I'll read this. You can follow along. Um, Psalm 23, verse 1. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Your word is a gift to us. You didn't have to give us scripture in the way you did. You didn't have to reveal yourself to us, God, but you did. You chose to do this out of your goodness. Um, may we take your word seriously, God. May we not trivialize it. May we not become complacent or familiar with it, God. Holy Spirit, you're the instructor, you're the teacher here today. Would you do your work? Um, in the words of the song that Robbie led us in, give us Christ today. Amen. Basically, this chapter, like all psalms, um, is, a, is a piece of poetry set to music. So watch for the poetic in this. Sometimes as Americans, we get a little uh, illogical. Uh, watch for the beauty in this psalm as we work through it. It's, it's poetry set to music that was meant to sing, to remind uh, the people as they were singing. This psalm is also considered what's called a messianic psalm. Uh, and a messianic psalm contains either direct prophecy about Christ as the Messiah. Congratulations. Um, either direct prophecy about Christ the Messiah or a veiled reference to Christ in some way as the Messiah. So keep that in mind too. We'll be coming back to that concept as well. David, the writer of this song, uses two strong metaphors in this psalm. I just want to look at both of those and kind of see how the first one sets the stage and the second one builds on that. That's what I hope to accomplish today in, in uh, communicating this. Um, in the first metaphor, in, in verses 1 through 4, we, we are introduced to God as a shepherd. Um, a shepherd, in case you don't have a flock of your own at home, um, just to give you a little update on that, is a full-time caretaker or overseer of sheep, someone whose job it is to take care of sheep, to protect and, and, uh, and all those kind of things. Uh, David uses a simple but really rich metaphor to paint a picture of God's care and oversight for us as his people. In fact, I think there's five, uh, I think in these first five opening words are really seriously loaded. I think we see a lot of good setup in these first five words, and I just want to start the text uh, by looking at these words, the Lord is my shepherd. In the first word David uses in this psalm, he starts by referencing God as the, as the God, the Lord. There's some, there's some very important theology here. David's God stands alone. In a, in, a, in a world where there were a lot of gods being purported, David represents the God of the universe as a God who stands alone. He has no competition. He doesn't have anybody competing for his space. It's not this idea of the devil and God or some other guy duking it out and you're not sure who's going to win. Have you seen that before? Not what's happening here. This is a God who created and rules over everything. Notice that David does not say one of the gods. David references it as the Lord. I saw a t-shirt once that said something like this, there is a God and you are not him. And I thought that was pretty clever. I don't know how effective that is for evangelism really, but... Um, we do have to remind ourselves of that often. There is a God, and we are not Him. The clear message that we see in Scripture is that God is the only God. 
This is an important foundation for where we're going today. The God of the Bible stands alone. He's a solitary God. Isaiah, uh, in chapter 40, asks this rhetorical question. To whom will you liken God? And that's a question we should reckon with, even in our own daily lives. He goes on, and what likeness compare with him? And the answer, the unspoken answer there is no one. He stands alone. The next word that David uses is Lord. Lord here means rightful ruler. I want to emphasize that word rightful. He's the rightful ruler for a reason. Understanding God is the rightful ruler, everything is, a, is a, a critical component of the gospel as well. We have to continually come back to this important foundation. It's, a, it's essential for our ongoing spiritual formation to understand God as the rightful ruler, and it's vital when we share our faith um, as we present the gospel. Think about this. God is in charge of everything because he owns everything. And God owns everything because he made everything. He's the creator of all. Again, I'm trying to lay some really important basic Christian worldview foundation, and David's doing the same thing here. I'm, I'm just following him. He's the creator of all things. And he's not the creator of all things in the same way that you or I make something. My wife, Darla, sitting right back here, she's the foxy one, is a great cook. My wife is an awesome cook. She is such a great cook that I have to ride my bike more often um, because she's such a great cook. She makes fish tacos, she makes salsa, she makes, um, oh, avocado corn salsa, right? Carnitas, burritos, green chili, and this is just Sunday brunch. I mean, I'm just getting started here. She's good. The thing Darla can't do, though, is create a new vegetable out of nothing. You, are, you will not see her come to the table with a veg vegetable that didn't exist before. You won't see her come to the table with some new spice or something or seasoning that, no one's, that, that hasn't happened before. She, like all of us who, are, uh, who were created, always start with something. That differentiates God from us in a big way. God starts with nothing. When David begins with these words, the Lord, you have to see the very power, powerful biblical worldview behind these words. You will not understand both the beauty and the severity of God until you come to understand him as the rightful ruler. When the scriptures call us to worship God, it's because he deserves it, literally. When the scripture calls us to give our lives to God, it's because they're already his. When the scripture calls us to be generous with our time, our money, our talents, it's because they ultimately belong to God in the first place. Do you see how this position, you may have heard this, sets up the whole rest of this passage. Watch for that. David continues with the word my. The Lord is my shepherd. What a very personal, intimate, and positional even word that David uses here to describe God. He uses the word my. My shepherd. Up to this point in the Psalms, we see that God is represented primarily as a king. Or as a deliverer, representing his authority and his sovereignty. Beautiful. We see God represented as a rock or a fortress or a tower of strength, representing his vast strength or his immutability. He does not change. He's unchangeable. These are important pictures of God. From them we learn who God is and what he's like in relation to his creation. But watch this. Here David uses language that goes closer, deeper, and shows God's more intimate relationship with his people. David's audience here has heard about God as being powerful. They've heard about God as being holy, set apart. They've heard about God as being sovereign. And here David builds on those themes and that understanding to reveal God also, at the same time, intimate and relational. And he uses language that's very familiar to his hearers to demonstrate this. He says, the Lord is my 
shepherd. By the way, this idea um, of God as both supremely sovereign and powerful, in charge of everything, and as beautiful and as relationally intimate, personal and caring, is beautiful. It's unique to Christianity. Think about that. Christianity tells about a God who is both in charge of everything, he is, um, he is powerful and mighty, he is also close and caring. It's unclear at what point in David's life he wrote this psalm, Psalm 23. It was most likely after he had become king. But it's easy to imagine him looking back on his younger life as a shepherd in the fields himself and likening God's care to his people likening God's care for his people to the care of a shepherd and a flock. The first metaphor that David uses in verse 1 through 4 is the metaphor of a shepherd. In this section of the passage, we see God as a shepherd in functional intimacy with his people, a God who cares in very practical ways, a God who is very present in practical ways. Throughout Scripture, we have a rich theme of God as a shepherd, Ezekiel prophesies that God will come to shepherd his people in Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 11. Let me read a piece of that. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick dark, darkness. I suggest that we see God's care for his people in at least five different ways in verses 1 through 4. Let's work through those. Number one, my provider. Verses 1 and 2 of the chapters read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. As provider, God gives us what we truly need. Our culture confuses want and need. Uh, and let, let me go a little more personal. Not just our culture, you and me. We are our culture. We confuse the word want and need a little bit. Here I think it's, it's best to read this as the word want in verse 1 could be thought of as I shall, lack any, I, shall lack, I shall not lack anything I genuinely need. The Lord is our provider. God is not only the creator, he is the sustainer. He did not just create the world and walk away from it. He is actively sustaining what he created. Do you think of him in this way? Sometimes we think of God a little bit more in this big event of creation and all that power going into that, and then maybe God's just kind of chilling out from that. The Bible communicates the truth about God that he is an active sustainer of the world. Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul writes these words that show us both sides of that in a beautiful way. Colossians 1, 16, For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we see that creative power of God. And then verse 17, and he is before all things. Again, speaking of Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we have this idea of Jesus sustaining things. In the very broad sense, he constantly holds together all of reality. He provides the energy to every atom, every nanosecond of every day. That's Jesus. But even more specifically, he holds together our individual lives. The air we breathe, God's provision. The food we eat, whether it's lobster or rice, God's provision. The roof over our heads, whether a mansion or a tent, is God's provision. And if God created and sustains all things, this is true whether you're a believer here today or not. This is, God's, this is what God does. All of life comes from and is held together by God. 
Our jobs, our occupations, the way we sustain our lives. Whether you're a rocket scientist or you flip burgers, God's provision. And let me go just one level below that. The very skills and abilities that you have, that you work with every day. What gives you the, the ability to be a rocket scientist or to flip burgers or any other thing? It's all from him. We can take no credit. I remember the first day my kids did a lemonade stand. You parents might remember this. My big kids did a lemonade stand. They come running in the house after a little while. Dad, Dad, we made $20 today. And I'm excited for them because I'm a dad, you know. I'm like, yeah, you rock. I'm like, you did, huh? Yeah, yeah, we made 20 bucks. I'm thinking to myself, let's see, I paid $7 for the lemonade, $2 for the ice, $5 for the cups, $5 for the tag board and Sharpie marker. They're using my card table, my chairs, my tablecloth, my pitcher, and my front yard. Do you see where I'm going with this illustration? Don't get me wrong, I'm proud of my kids. I'm not, I'm a jerk, but I'm not that big of a jerk. I was proud of my kids. Super proud of them to see them out there getting, have, having fun. Make money, they did not. They just spent money, okay? My point is, and let's be very careful, we don't take too much credit in our own lives. We are those children, taking what God has provided for us down to the nth degree and working them out to his glory, hopefully. That's, that's a picture of our lives. Sometimes we get to thinking that God gives us life, gives us a start, gives us a push, almost like a kid on a bike. But then it's really up to us to make something of ourselves. This is very short-sighted. God, daily by the moment, sustaining our lives. Let's think of him more in that way. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm glad you're here. It's awesome. You can at least start to see that in this passage some of the foundational truths to, biblical, to a biblical worldview and how that gets formed. A true Christian lives his or her life in response to God as a provider. Even when it feels like my specific prayers are not being answered, he leads me to the green pastures and still waters of his provision. Can you look back and see God's provision in your life? I believe if you're honest, we all can. Darla and I were married young. Very young. Very, very young, according to my parents, who were a little freaked out. I was too dumb to be freaked out. And we were poor. We were really poor. Um, I remember the first time, and, and, and I remember in the first year of our marriage one time, uh, my kids have probably heard this story a million times, um, we were living in Dallas, Texas. I was going to school, um, and we had run out of macaroni and cheese. I got pretty much up to that point. We had this cabinet full of macaroni and cheese. And we knew how we were doing by how many boxes were left. Well, this particular day, there were zero boxes left. Um, and uh, we literally had no food and an empty bank account. So when we got married, we each had a penny collection. So we combined our penny collection in this ceremonious event, and we hauled this big jar down to the bank, uh, which was across the highway from where we lived, and we cashed in our penny collection. And they charged us to do that. Really? Anyway, um, we cashed in our penny collection, and it was the only money we had. They probably gave us 30 bucks or something. And you know what? God provided in that moment. And maybe that's a cheesy story. Maybe that's a silly story. I'll leave that up to you. But maybe not. Maybe that's the perfect example of what God does for each one of us every day, whether we realize it or not. I haven't had to cash in my penny collection for quite a while now, but I can absolutely look back over 34 years of marriage and see some dramatic ways and a whole bunch of everyday ways that God has provided. Even through adversity, God provides. This can be an important exercise when we face challenges and trials. Do not forget to look back at how God has provided for you in the past and acknowledge that. Point number one, 
The Lord is my provider. Number two, my restorer. Verse three, he restores my soul. Here we see God as the one who restores us. In other places in Scripture, the same root word used for restore carries the thought of repentance or to turn back. Here it also has the idea of bringing back, bringing something back. We see a picture of a shepherd watching out for each sheep and going out to find the ones who have wandered off. The ones who have been singled out by a predator have been injured and restoring them back to the sheepfold. Remember, to get the most out of this analogy, we have to remember that sheep are completely and utterly dependent on the shepherd. Right? You sheep don't have a couple of options that they're working with and they're just going with this guy because of, you know, he's, he's got a charismatic personality. These guys are completely and utterly dependent on the shepherd. You parents get this. We have five kids. When they were little, we'd lose one once in a while in a mall or something. No judge. Don't judge. My motto was always, hey, 80% isn't bad at the end of the day. But my wife, Darla, was a better shepherd than me. She wanted all of them to be round up, but rounded up before we went home. But just like Darla in the, in the mall, frantically looking for our son, Zach, when he had wandered off, God is all about restoring us to him when we wander. I think of the famous hymn. It's one of my favorites. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is me and this is you. God is the caring shepherd who restores. The Lord is my restorer. Number three, the Lord is my guide. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. At a very basic level, the word righteousness here simply means the right path. He leads me down the right path, the way I need to go. The sheep don't know the way. They don't know what's ahead. They don't know where danger lies. They don't know the seasons. They don't know where the green pastures or still waters are. The shepherd leads. The sheep follow. This relates to both provision and protection. He guides them to what is best for them, whether they understand it or not. Let me just repeat that part. He guides them to what is best for them, whether they understand it or not. How often do we question the sovereignty of God? I confess that I do. But remember, God is omniscient, all-knowing, all-wise, all-seeing. And I am not. This is clear from my life. There's a trust implied here in the leading and the following. We can trust God to guide us because he sees the big picture when we do not. Point number three, the Lord is my guide. Number four, the Lord is my protector. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The picture here is a deep valley, so deep that it blocks the sun, it casts shadows. It's a picture of danger from the world around us and possibly from ourselves. For the sheep, it could be wild animals, thieves, wandering off. David professes that he will not fear evil because he understands God's constant companionship, watch, and protection. David has experienced this personally as a shepherd in his younger life. He protected a flock of sheep that was entrusted to him, and he's experienced it as a sheep as well. He had many times in his life that he wrote about where he experienced evil and wickedness firsthand. Notice that David does not say here, if I walk through the valley. He says, even though I walk through the valley. There's something very important for us here as a congregation. And I would be very sensitive um, to what we're seeing here. I know many of you in this room. Many of you in this room know me and my family. I know some of your shadowed valleys. Some of you are in them right now. Many of us have experienced these shadow val shadowed valleys firsthand. Tragedy, wickedness, evil. 
And the reality is there are many, many stories represented by the precious people in this room that have not ever been uttered. Maybe you've come face to face with evil and wickedness. Maybe you can relate to tragedy. I know I can. As children, my wife, Darla, and I have both experienced the horror of sexual abuse. We've lived through that. And I know in a room this size, we're not alone. Statistically, one in four people have been abused in this way. We've also felt the utter helplessness and inexpressible terror of learning that several of our kids have experienced the crime of this abuse as well. I cannot tell you with words the anguish and the turmoil that that has caused us as parents. I don't have words for that. But let me just say this, like you, I've often asked the question, God, if you're good, how could you allow evil? And the answer we get in this passage is, I am with you. Spoken from the, word, the lips of God, I am with you. This may not be the intellectual answer you're looking for today, but it is absolutely the experiential answer we need when we face pain, that God is with us. And please remember, God does not owe you or me an answer to our every demand. He just doesn't. As if he were some mere human or an elected official that we put on trial. That's actually a very dangerous reversal of roles. We have to be careful with that. But while humanism and moralism struggle to even define evil, and while naturalism and materialism and atheism tells us that there's no such thing as evil, question mark, the God of the universe says to his own, you don't have to fear, I am with you. Fear is real. We live in a sin-broken world. Our neighbors experience fear. Our co-workers experience fear. Your extended family members experience fear. Our kids, especially our teenagers, experience fear. Health, violence, money, relationships, significance. Fear of death is a huge one. This is important. Note here that the psalmist doesn't deny evil. He doesn't bury his head in the sand. He doesn't minimize the pain or pretend it isn't there with the latest book on positive thinking or some kind of creative visualization technique. Instead, he says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. One other thing here I don't want to miss. Very subtle. Up to this point, David, in this, in this passage, David is referring to God as he. He makes me lie down. He restores my soul. He leads me. Look at this. But now David switches to the more intimate relational word, you. David goes in this moment to you, or thou, some translations say. You are with me. I love this. This is what makes the poetry especially beautiful here. In the hardest times, in the struggle, in the pain, God is not pictured as being out, in head as a, out ahead as a guide. He is pictured as being right alongside as a companion. That's the shepherd God. So make this verse your prayer today. Maybe it's a prayer of gratitude for what you've already experienced. Maybe it's a prayer of confession that you're clinging to. Maybe it's a prayer of desperation for what you can only hope is true. All these are valid prayers. To a good shepherd, the protector of the flock. The Lord is my protector. Number five, the Lord is my disciplinarian. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and staff are two different things. One is a weapon, that's the rod. One is an instrument. The staff. The rod was a club 
worn at the belt. It was used to protect the sheep in defense, to ward off uh, attackers, lions or tigers or bears. Oh, my. The rod was not used to beat the sheep. Keep that in mind. The rod was used, or the, um, the rod was used to protect. The staff was typically a long stick with a crook at the end held in the hand. Used for what? To keep the sheep in line. Again, to keep the sheep in line for their protection. I immediately think of Hebrews 12:5, where the writer talks about God and discipline. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What's the purpose of discipline? To protect us for our own good. Why is the psalmist comforted by, comforted by both the rod and the staff? Because he understands that they are both used for protection. The Lord is my disciplinarian. I believe we all experience the shepherd in each of these capacities in different times, in different ways over our lifetime. Sometimes one more than others for seasons of our life. But there's something for everyone in this passage. First we see his, his functional intimacy in the image of God as a shepherd. Now the writer turns to a second metaphor as he continues to describe this beautiful relationship between God and his people. In verses 5 through 6, the metaphor changes, and now we see God represented as a friend, and he speaks of relational intimacy. Here we see God depicted as a host. The idea of hospitality, the shared table, is still important in many cultures, including ours, but it was huge in the ancient cultures. Inviting someone into your home was more than just sharing your Doritos and your Mountain Dew, although that was part of it. Opening your home for a meal was an extension of friendship. It was an intimate expression of trust. Notice how David goes from a deeply caring, functional role that we looked at before, beautiful to be sure, to an even more intimate, relational role now. He's building on his, on his, on his passage. In this passage, I think we see at least four ways in which God relates to us as a friend in the metaphor of a gracious host. Number one, God relates to us with honor and favor. Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. First of all, please don't miss this. God treats us as an honored guest. This entire concept, again, is unique to Christianity. God chooses to honor his rebel creation as friends. Let's not lose that. He invites them to his table, a very personal and gracious gesture. Notice here that the table is in the presence of my enemies. Probably notes a victory celebration of some kind with perhaps captive enemies present. God is the shepherd protector is now depicted as the victorious host at a celebration banquet. God relates to us with honor and favor. Number two, God relates us to us with blessing. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It was common in David's time to pour oil on the person's head or beard as an anointing or as a blessing. Those oils could be very expensive or costly, especially for an honored guest. We also see the picture of an overflowing cup here. Probably not a cup that magically just overflows but a cup that is constantly being refilled. I was invited to a dinner at the Ritz-Carlton in Chicago one time. And one of the things that stuck out to me, this wait staff was just incredible. One of the things that stuck out to me is how meticulous they were at refilling my water glass. I take a drink and someone's just like, you know, 
Like, I don't think it ever got down past like a half an inch. This is this idea of abundance and blessing, constant. Again, the pictures of a fine banquet, the oil, the overflowing cup, separating this from an everyday average meal. Both of these pictures show a gracious, generous host, not holding back, but giving us the very best. God relates to us with blessing. Number three, God relates to us with pursuit. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Because the host has honored his guests with a banquet, invited them in, because the host has been generous with his blessing, spared nothing, the psalmist can with confidence say, surely. In other words, because I can now see who you are and what you're like, I can trust you that you will remain good and merciful. And not just temporarily, all of my days. The picture here is not so much about us pursuing God, although that's good and right. The picture here is God pursuing us. God coming to us. God's desire for us. God's pursuing relationship for us. God relates to us with pursuit. Which leads to number four. God relates to us with assurance. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love the part of our service and our liturgy where we do the confession, and right after that we do the assurance. Where we, we recognize the gospel and our brokenness and our sin, and we confess and repent, and we see the work. We're reminded of the work that God does in assurance. This gets, this, this gets better. Not only are we honored, not only are we favored, not only are we blessed and pursued by the infinite God, the infinite mind. This banquet, this feast is more than just a single meal. This relationship that God is offering is permanent. The culmination of all this, as we learn about God and his grace extended to us, is not a quick fix to our troubles. It's not God as our cosmic butler waiting for our every beck and call. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Can you see this? It's an invitation to God's household, it, to his very family, to be with him always. It's a change of address. It's a change of family names. It's a change of kingdoms that God is inviting us to. God relates to us with assurance. Now let's fast forward. We see the prophetic, we see this messianic psalm pointing towards, the messianic psalm means it points towards Christ. So let's go to episode two now. I told you, I promise we're going to finish the whole show here. Episode, in episode two, we see in the New Testament Jesus as the sacrificial shepherd. Remember, we said this was a messianic psalm. Points forward to the promise, Messiah. We don't know the exact amount of time between the writing of this psalm and when Jesus came onto the earth, was born, and lived, but it was centuries. In John 10 in the New Testament, Jesus reveals himself as the shepherd to his people. You have to see this. It's super important. We know from solid biblical theology that Jesus is God, right? Make sure you're at the right church. So watch this. Not only do we see Jesus revealed in the New Testament as the shepherd and as a friend, we also see him, him revealed as the sacrificial lamb. What? Does this even make sense? John 10, verse 11, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who, is he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. Remember the verse earlier from Colossians? We see Jesus as a creator of the world. We see Jesus 
as constantly sustaining the world, now we see Jesus as providing the sacrifice that you and I desperately need. The evil we talked about earlier, the wickedness we see around us in this world, all a part of a sin-broken world. And it's easier to see sin in someone else than it is ourselves. Am I right? But the truth is, that seed of sin is in every one of us. You, me, us, them, they, he, we, she, whatever pronoun you want to use, we all hold evil in our hearts. We all have wickedness bound up inside of us, no matter how hard we try to be good. Philosophy cannot save us. Morality cannot save us. Theology cannot save us. We have a sickness or a condition called sin that we are helpless to fix or heal on our own. And I believe that in a moment of true honesty, you will see that that's true. If you hear nothing else I say today, please hear this. Jesus did not die to make bad people good. He died to make dead people live. That's the gospel. If you understand Christianity as a set of rules to keep, if you understand Christianity as a way to heaven by being good, by cleaning it up, you've tragically missed the very message of the gospel. The message of the gospel with Jesus as the perfect sacrifice is you and I are dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, regardless of which list of rules we choose. And Jesus' sacrificial death offers a free gift of life to all who believe. I'll wrap up quickly with this. I just want to leave you with three responses or challenges today. Number one, we can acknowledge God and his lordship. The Holy Spirit may be pressing on people in this room today, probably is, to acknowledge for the first time Jesus as Lord. It's the Lord who is shepherd. The reason this concept of shepherd and friend is so amazing to us is that he is Lord. He is the ruler of everything. This lies in direct opposition to our cultural idolatry of autonomy. I want to shake that off. I want to be our own. I want to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps and dig deep within and pull out something. And guess what's deep within? Our sin nature. Maybe you need to do this today for the first time. Acknowledge Jesus as Lord. If so, I can tell you from my own experience, it's a beautiful surrender. I'd love to talk to you more about it if that's you today. Or maybe God is bringing you back to Lordship again today for the 259th time. That's okay. He's good and kind in that way. If that's you, would you acknowledge him as Lord again today? Number two, we can show gratitude. Gratitude is the natural response to acknowledging Jesus as Lord. When we truly start to understand him as being rightfully in charge, the result is gratitude, or what we call worship. And it's gratitude that he genuinely deserves. Many times we have feelings of gratitude when we experience circumstances that go according to our desires. That's easier. Our expectations are met. Are, are, are met. That's good and right. But we should also choose gratitude when things don't go the way we expected. We are not God. He is far greater than us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And praise God that's true. I don't want you running the universe, and believe me, you don't want me running it. Can we just get that established? Will you only worship God when things are going according to your plan? It's a good question. Or will you choose to worship Jesus because you trust that he is in Lord, that he is Lord? Leads us to number three. We can renew our trust in him. By very nature, God can be trusted. In fact, because he is God, he can be trusted. He's the only one who can be trusted. This is a major theme of Scripture. God promises, God fulfills. God promises, God fulfills. 
over and over again. To me, the message here seems to be that God is saying to us, I've already done all of that, looking back. You can trust me for what's coming up, looking forward. Let's pray. God, we do acknowledge you as the ruler, the creator, the ruler, the sustainer of all things. In that role, in that unique position that you hold, God, help us to see ourselves as the created. Help us to see ourselves for who we are. Help us be careful not to usurp uh, your power and your authority. I think we do that on a very regular basis. God, remind us of your greatness. Remind us, God, how you take care of us, how you sustain us in our lives. And not only that, God, but you call us a friend. You invite us to your banquet table. You shower us with blessings and honor, God. It's really unbelievable. But it's true. God, I pray we as a congregation would see these things. I pray I as a person would see these things. Be constantly reminded of your goodness to us, God. And acknowledge your position in our lives. Cause us to be grateful people. Cause us to be worshipers of you, God. You're worthy of it. Amen.